0: And thank you to everyone for attending. Um, I'm very, very excited about the panel that we have. It's a panel of experts and I know that I personally will learn a ton from it. Um, So I'll start out with who I am. I'm Margaret Kuzma. I've emailed with many of you. I've spoken to a few of you and I've met in person very, very few of you. Um, So hopefully this puts a face with a name. Um, I work with Dana Montalto, who you will hear from later in in this presentation, at the Veterans Legal Clinic Center at uh, the Harvard Law School, and my primary function is to run the Veterans Pro Bono Justice Panel, and if any of you are currently taking a case with us, or you have taken a case in the past, or maybe you are considering taking the case. Um, we would really love that. It helps us tremendously. We get far more veterans coming to us for aid than we can possibly help in house. So you guys are really a force multiplier and do tremendous work. Uh, primarily our volunteers do discharge upgrades, which means that a veteran has received a less than honorable discharge unjustly, and we try to get that upgraded for them. Today, we will be talking a little bit about discharge upgrades, but we will mostly be focused on the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, character of discharge determination process, which is something that can also help veterans access a lot of benefits that they may not be getting because of that less than honorable discharge. So I'm very excited to introduce some of you to all of that. Um, And just a little bit of housekeeping. I know that Noah told you all about the Q&A Um, I will try to monitor that as I am talking. I'm going to fly through some slides with all of you. And when I say fly through, I'm gonna really try to, to leave as much time as humanly possible for the panel because they're the experts and they're really going to give you a ton of insightful information on the character of discharge or COD process. Um, and all of the slides are in materials that Noah will send out to all of you. So I've put together a ton of articles. I put together a PDF that has links to, um, resources that can help you both with discharge upgrades and with CODs if you want. And then always you can email me. Um, I am more than happy to answer your questions or, find somebody who can. So please feel free to reach out to me. If I don't get to you in the CNA um, tab, then I will reach out to you afterwards. So don't be shy. Um, with that, let me go ahead and start the slideshow. Okay. If I can pro- progress, sorry. Okay, got it. Um, hopefully, that's my only snafu. Um, so, very quickly, I'm going to give you some updates on the discharge upgrade area of the law. There's actually really only one, but it's a pretty exciting one. So, I'm I'm um, looking forward to telling you all about it. And then I'm going to fly through a very broad brush stroke VACOD practice primer. Um, Again, lots of of resources for you in that material packet. And then we're going to have a panel discussion. Um, I'll ask the panel questions to try to get a little bit more in-depth experience and expertise on the COD process. And then at the end, I'll also have a lot of time, hopefully a lot of time for you, you all to ask questions. Okay, so the updates in discharge upgrade world. Um, So if you've attended one of these in the past or you're currently taking a case, you probably have heard of the class actions that the Yale Veterans Legal Clinic did um, and and are currently doing against the discharge review boards. So there are three class actions, they're against the respective branch discharge review boards and they're on behalf of post 9-11 service members who received less than honorable discharges. And those discharges were somewhat related in, in some way to PTSD, TBI, which is traumatic brain injury, MST, which is military sexual trauma, um, intimate partner violence, or another behavioral health condition. Um, those Those, veterans are all automatically in classes. And, and I put some more information. I put a link on here. There's, you can get the complaints, the original complaints, you can get lots of, of the additional filings, and then you can get the settlements themselves on the Yale Yale website. The Kennedy a lawsuit was against the Army DRB that was approved in 2021 and resulted in rehearings for many veterans who had gone to the DRB before and been denied um, we are starting to see some of those cases come come through again with their rehearing and we've seen some really positive results. The NDRB, also that settlement was approved in 2022. And again, we're starting to see some results. Um, more mixed results, I would say, but we are getting some positives. And then the really exciting news is just last week, the Johnson case, which was against the Air Force DRB, was approved. And I, if you're on my my listserv and currently have a case, I'll also be sending out more information about that as it as it comes forward. So TBD, but exciting news. Okay, and now to distinguish between CODs, the character of discharge determinations and discharge upgrades, which some of you may be familiar with. So, If you're talking about a discharge upgrade, that is with the Department of Defense. So that board I was just talking about, the Discharge Review Board, those are actually Department of Defense boards. They can change the DD-214. If you are going to a board for correction of military records, um, which is similar to a DRB, um, that can actually change the official military personnel file. So they are are going back in time, in a sense, and changing the military records. It's dispositive on the VA. So if you get a veteran who, let's say, has an other than honorable discharge and has previously been told by the VA that they cannot access VA services, once that veteran gets uh, the upgrade, to let's say general under honorable or honorable, then the VA has to respect that. And the VA will actually see the updated DD 214 in their system. Um, I have a little asterisk there because there of course are some exceptions um, as always. And one, the big exceptions are, there were some class um, upgrades back in, Usually or mostly the the Vietnam era. So so there were some under President Ford and then there were some under President Carter. Those upgraded a a ton of veterans under certain circumstances. But because they weren't individually reviewed by a DRB or a BCMR, those DOD boards, they they don't actually count for the VA, um, and it says that on the DD two fourteen. So if you have questions about that, um, we don't we don't usually see those. There aren't that many anymore that are coming for for access to the VA to us. Um, but there's a ton of information in. Um, a couple materials that I'll get to in a second. So, character of discharge determination. So that is not in the DOD. That is in the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA. So we are shifting to the VA world. Um, it cannot change the military record. So let's say the 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 veteran goes through the COD process and gets something that says they're honorable for VA purposes, that is not going to change the DV 214. So it's not going to change the document that you're really trying to change with a discharge upgrade. Um, The veteran will still have this this piece of paper that summarizes their service, and it will not say honorable unless they go to a DOD board. Uh, And you can certainly use um, CODs when you're applying for a ADU as evidence. Uh, we do that sometimes, especially if there's good language in the decision. And we'll talk a little bit more about those strategies later on. Um, but it's not it's the, the DOD boards are not going to look at that and say, oh, well, we're going to follow what the VA did. Um, in fact, they have boilerplate language that they automatically include <laughs> in a lot of their decisions that say, you know, we're not bound by the VA. Um, so just know all of that. And some fantastic resources. These are all linked in your materials Um, If you want to buy the NVLSP manual, there's a link there. Same with the Military Discharge Upgrade Legal Practice Manual. Uh, NVLSP, we have two of our speakers work at NVLSP. This is the the book to have if you are doing any sort of VA benefits work. It is fantastic. It really is a step-by-step kind of soup to nuts you do these cases and it has a whole chapter on character of discharge determinations. The military discharge upgrade legal practice manual, more focused towards discharge upgrades, but it has a fantastic chapter that was written by Dana Montalto, who you will hear from, um, all about CODs. So both of those tremendous resources. I also link to and included in your materials a how to access VA healthcare if you have a less than honorable discharge self help guide that we put together um, because there are ways that veterans can access the VA even if they have a less than honorable discharge that hasn't been upgraded or that hasn't gone through the COD process. Um, so it explains a little bit about the process and then it also talks about some other ways that that veterans can potentially access it. So if you have veterans that that really need that care. Definitely, um, that's something that we would encourage you to share with the veterans. Okay, so quick overview of the VA COD process, the Character of Discharge Determination Process. Um, so when we're talking about VA, uh, I'm really talking about the basic benefits, access to healthcare, disability disability compensation, which you may also hear called service-connected. Uh, compensation, pension, home loans. I have stars by GI Bill because the eligibility requirements for GI Bill are a little bit different than for the other general benefits. GI Bill actually requires a full honorable, so the COD process won't uh, make somebody eligible for that, but the COD process will make people eligible for the other benefits. And for healthcare, again, I have a little star because there are other ways that veterans might be able to access the VA. And, um, you know, I want to really emphasize that because we want as many people as possible to have access to healthcare. So, what do they need to access these benefits? A lot of people think if you serve, if you volunteer, if, you know, you were called up, you were commissioned, then you automatically get benefits. Um, Unfortunately, that's not the case. You have to meet some eligibility requirements. And what we're specifically talking about in this training is the definition of a veteran, uh, which encompasses a character of discharge component. So there's also an active service requirement. And depending on when you served, there may be some length of service requirements for certain benefits. So, the VA's definition uses this language that could be clearer um, and is very, very confusing for many veterans that we see um it is whether the veteran service was under other than dishonorable conditions or under dishonorable conditions and i say it could be clearer and it's very confusing because i see veterans all the time who come in and are very upset because they tried to access the va they went through this process and they were told that they were dishonorable for va purposes well a dishonorable discharge In in DOD land um, means that the veteran went through a full general court martial and got the the lowest uh, characterization possible. Um, And here it means something very different. Um, So if if you have a veteran, they may be very confused about that. Similarly, I see veterans who come in and they've received a COD that says they're honorable for VA purposes. And then they think that they got the upgrade and their DD-214 will be changed. And again, unfortunately, um, that's not the case. It's great that they're honorable for VA purposes because that means they can access a bunch of VA benefits, um, but it will not change the DD-214. Um, There are some other specifics and um, things that the panel will go over as far as if if a veteran has multiple terms, what that means for access. But in general, these are the definitions and this is the language that you'll see in VA world when they're trying to make a determination as to whether a veteran fits this definition of who is eligible and who is a veteran for the VA. Okay, so when they're defining veteran, they're looking at statutory bars and regulatory bars. And this is what they're using to determine if somebody is honorable for VA purposes or dishonorable for VA purposes. I'm not gonna read all of these. Um, we'll talk about a few of them that you'll, you're more likely to see than others uh, with the panel. But I'll just say by and large, the statutory bars are far more specific and discreet and the regular regulatory bars are a um, little bit more fuzzy and uh, give the VA a lot more room to exclude or not exclude. Um, unfortunately, we see a lot more veterans being excluded under the regulatory bars than the statutory bars. Um, particularly the willful and persistent misconduct. Uh, but we'll get to some some arguments that that can be made against those. And I'll also mention, and we we may have some time to talk about it with the panel. But there is a petition for rulemaking that the the VA agreed to relook at these regulatory bars and hopefully make them a little bit more veteran friendly. In your materials, there's a link to that petition um, if you are interested in looking at it. So. I keep talking about a COD. How does one start a character of discharge determination process? So for the, for the discharge upgrade, you have to specifically uh, apply for it for one of the DOD boards to look at whether somebody should be upgraded. For a COD, there's not a COD application. Um, what a veteran needs to do is apply for a VA benefit. So apply for a home loan, apply for service connection, uh, disability payments, um, apply for healthcare, and that should trigger a COD. It doesn't always, um, but it is supposed to trigger a character of discharge determination. And then the veteran will get a letter that says they can have a hearing and they can present evidence Um, They can request with a CMP exam, that's a comp and pen pen exam that the veteran will also be going through if the veteran's trying for service connection disability. Uh, And then the VA will look at all of the evidence, it will apply those regulations and look for the statutory bars, um, and it will issue a decision. If it's unfavorable, there are avenues to appeal just like any other VA issue. Okay, and before I get to the big exception, I want to stop sharing um, and open it up to our panel because one of our panel members is going to talk about the exception. So hopefully I can bring the slide up at the appropriate time. Um, So let me introduce our panel. You have their full bios and the materials, but I'm so excited to have everybody here. Um, as I said, two of the attorneys uh, work at NVLSP that puts out the fantastic VA benefits manual. Matt Handley works is an EJW there, and he also a, is a U.S. Army veteran. He has worked as a VA service representative before going to law school, so he has insider knowledge for us, in addition to having his attorney expertise, Cindy Johnson, uh, I worked with for many years when we were both at the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. She's done a ton of CoDs. She is in the litigation department now at the at NVLSP. And she actually edited part of the COD chapter for the Veterans Benefits Manual. Um, Dana Montalto, you all probably know, she works with me at Harvard. She wrote the fantastic COD chapter in the Military Discharge Upgrade Manual and has written extensively on this issue in, in law review articles, which I've linked to in your materials and um, also is responsible for, if you have seen our turned away report or the underserved report about veterans being excluded from VA care, um, that was primarily the work of Dana Mentolto. So without further ado, let me start with our first question. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, So I'd like to start with you, Matt. And given your background from both inside the VA and as a legal aid attorney doing veterans benefits work, um, can you give us a little bit of background on the VA system and how these claims are processed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as Margaret said, uh, in a past life, uh, before going to law school, I worked as uh, what's called a VSR, or Veteran Service Representative. And they are the claims adjudicators uh, that the VA employs to process benefits claims. So a COD determination is most often gonna be triggered by that veteran applying for benefits. Uh, It is possible to request one sort of independently of a claim, but the vast majority of the time uh, that veteran submitting some kind of claim is gonna be what kicks off that process. as a VSR, uh, you uh, log into VBMS, which is the VA's uh, database uh, claim management system, the Veterans Benefits Management System. Uh, and you have a number of claims assigned to you uh, and you go through a series of checks. And so one of the first checks that every VSR is gonna go through when they first see a claim come in is called veteran status. So it's basically name, address, and then the first thing that you check is veteran status. Uh, And there's a field in that database that contains that VA determination, either HVA, honorable for VA purposes, uh, or DVA, dishonorable for VA purposes. So as a VSR processing that claim, if you see it come in and you look over at that field and see that it's already filled in, that it either says HVA or DVA, then that VSR is going to move on. They're going to assume someone has already made that determination and they're either going to process the claim, if it's HVA, or if they see DVA, they're going to deny the claim Uh, and you're going to get a form letter that says, you know, you've been determined dishonorable for VA purposes. But if that hasn't been done already, then it is that VSR's job to uh, do the development and make a COD determination. So to talk a little bit about that, how that process works, What the VSR is going to do when the VA first gets your claim and sees that a COD determination needs to be done, the very first thing that's going to happen is they're going to send what's called a due process letter. Uh, And that basically lays out all of the veterans' rights, what the process is, what their rights are in the process, how to request a hearing, how to submit evidence. And then that claim is going to get closed, put back up in the cloud, and a 60-day timer is going to get set. And so once you receive that due process letter, uh, you have 60 days to respond to it as the veteran. And then once that 60 days has elapsed, that claim is gonna drop back out of the cloud to a new VSR uh, and they are gonna go ahead and adjudicate it. Whether or not the veteran has responded, sometimes they don't, sometimes they do, uh, but that VSR is gonna then go ahead and process the character of discharge determination. Um so uh that VSR is gonna verify that they have all of that veteran's records. Uh, usually personnel records are the most important thing that they're looking at to sort of look at the characterization of their service, what happened, uh, and they're gonna go ahead and write that determination. Um, the one exception is, and I know we're gonna talk about it later, if insanity is raised, then it's gonna get referred over to a more senior uh adjudicator, a rating VSR. Uh, to make the insanity determination. But in most cases, that COD is gonna get adjudicated by a junior VSR, they're gonna write the decision, they're gonna decide whether that veteran service is honorable or dishonorable, uh, and then they're going to publish that decision to the veteran.
0: Great, thank you so much. Uh-huh. Um, and and Dana, I'd like to turn to you. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about, so we just heard about how the process is supposed to work. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your research with the turnaway project, about what happens when something goes awry or a veteran is not put through the process? Absolutely.
2: Yes, there is, as Matt said, a process that's supposed to be followed. He laid it out so clearly um, as if you can just check a box and move things down an assembly line. Um, But what we hear far too often from so many veterans and and many of you uh, who are working with veterans pro bono probably have heard this from veterans you've you've worked with that They've tried to go access VA benefits before, they've tried to go get healthcare from VA, but been turned away or faced challenges and barriers. And there's lots of different stages at which that can happen. Um, You know, At one level, many veterans don't even try to do that because there's this general misconception and, and belief that veterans who have a less than honorable discharge just categorically aren't eligible. And the only thing that they can do is go get a discharge upgrade and That's incorrect. Um, And it's really important and and great that there are so many of you who are coming to this work and helping fight back against that misconception. But also many of these veterans are told that they're ineligible wrongly at some point in the process. Um, So we hear a lot from veterans who went to a VA healthcare site and someone said, well, let me look at your um, your DD 214. Oh, it says OTH we can't help you go away get a discharge upgrade we've also heard similar things with people trying to file a claim at, at the veterans benefits administration they'll go to a regional office and be told the same thing it's hard because no no one's really tracking every time someone is not properly processed but we think it could affect up to 400,000 veterans Because we know that it's really the minority of veterans who have actually gone through the COD process, whether that is favorable or unfavorable. Um, There's a there's huge hundreds of thousands who just haven't gone through the process at all, um, and potentially have been wrongfully turned away. Um, And that's one of the motivating reasons why we created the self help guide for veterans to talk about healthcare eligibility. Um, And I will give some credit to VA as well. They because of advocacy from members in the community have become more aware of this being a problem um, and created at least some better processes, especially for referring cases from VA healthcare facilities where a veteran needs a character of discharge determination. There's a form that was created a few years ago, the 200986 form that's only internal to VA, but it actually at least creates a little bit more, a piece of paper that can be tracked going from VHA over to the Veterans Administration the benefits administration to do a cod and report those results back to VHA. So it's a little bit better than it used to be, I think, um, but still um, far too many veterans not getting the care that they need.
0: And the turned away report is in your materials, um, and then there's also a link on on our website if you are interested in seeing that. It's also part of the reason we decided to have our district. Discharge upgrade annual training actually on uh, VA CODs, even though they're a different process, because so many veterans with less than honorable discharges um, don't know that there is this process and don't know that the if they go and try for VA healthcare, they have a right to go through the this process and, and can potentially access healthcare this way and, and some other VA benefits. Um, So I want to hone in a little bit on one stage of the process that I I know can be critical to getting a positive determination, and that's the hearings that, you know, once a COD is successfully triggered, um, the veterans receive that notice that you mentioned, Matt, and then they have a right to a hearing. Um, Cindy, I know you've had... A ton of hearings. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what to expect?
3: Sure. I uh, one of my favorite things is the COD hearing. When a veteran gets that due process letter that Matt mentioned, one option is to request an in-person hearing. Obviously, during the pandemic, they were not in person, and there's still kind of a push towards not in person. But it's a fantastic opportunity to directly make your case to one other human being. Uh, You can present all this evidence. One of the the great things about this process is an advocate can speak on behalf of the veteran. Um, Those of you who have represented veterans know them telling their own story, it's too personal, and, and they get bogged down in these details. But an advocate, a lawyer, any advocate can be more objective, knows the law, and can express it in the terms that the VA needs to hear in order to grant. The goal being getting everybody on the same page. And a hearing is a great way to do that. When words can fail you, when, when written word can fail you, you can make the case. Um, and you know, when you're in the room, you can, you can be a bully. <laughs> you can do whatever you need to do to be the lawyer that you're trained to be. Um, you know, channel Tom Cruise and a few good men if you need to. But it's a great opportunity and it's a lot of fun. You can, you're giving the, the VA the words that they need in order to grant the claim. And you do that through the hearing. Um, and when they, when they are in person, it's typically you're going to see the same person over and over, hearing after hearing. So you get to know the DRO officer. They get to know you and they get to trust your opinion when you're giving them that. So the process over time can really be beneficial. Um, I have one example where the veteran was discharged after assaulting an officer. That's how it was written out. That's what it looked like on paper. And at the hearing, we were able to present it as a handshake gone horribly wrong because you know they met up drunk at a party. And the um, enlisted service member thought doing a weird handshake that would hurt the officer and ram their thumb into them in some way would be a great, funny thing to do with some alcohol, making that even seem funnier. And it got written up as an assault. And it was because we were in the room with somebody and we could go through this and I could advocate. For the veteran, that that made the difference. On paper, it was you know assaulting an officer is not going to be uh, easy to overcome. So I I really like the hearing. It's not great in every case, but it is an opportunity for an advocate to speak on behalf of someone when a veteran can't speak on their own behalf.
0: And I'll just add that when I first started at Connecticut Veterans Legal Center with Cindy, when she was there, um, I went with her to one of her hearings. And we waited around with a veteran um, for, I think, at least an hour, waited for the hearing, waited for the hearing. And then finally, somebody came out and asked us why we were there because he had already been found honorable for VA purposes. And when we we didn't want to argue with them um, because that was the outcome we wanted. But when we asked them why, they just held up Cindy's brief and they were like, oh, because of this. Um, so sometimes you don't even need the hearing. But um, yeah, you're never you never quite know what to expect. Um So Cindy had mentioned that they're not always, um, she doesn't always ask for a hearing. Uh, Dana, I wanted to turn to you because I know you've also done these. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategic considerations that you um, take into account when you're deciding whether or not to ask for a hearing?
2: Sure. Like Cindy, I tend to be a big advocate of doing hearings, whether that's in the discharge upgrade realm or the COD realm, because I think that there's some intangible benefit often to just having that face-to-face interaction. There's so much stigma around having a less than honorable discharge. People are really blamed and shamed about that. And it's harder, I think, for whether that's the boards or or VA to um, not recognize like, the dignity and worth of another human if they're having to really confront that. And that also like the hearing forces them to spend a little bit more time getting ready for the hearing, looking at the materials. Um, And so sometimes there's a there's a forcing mechanism around it. Um, And like you said at the outset, Margaret, the regulations especially can be can be pretty fuzzy, um, especially when you can compare them to other parts of VA's regulations and guidelines that they have to apply. This is not, you know, service connection for hearing where there's this grid that you have to sort of mechanically apply and it's sort of a mathematical equation. This is an area where there is a lot of equity to it and um, being the advocate who can sort of hold the hand of the hearing officer and say, here's why all the regulatory bars don't apply and the statutory bars don't either. And look at this like really compelling person let me help them walk through their story. can you can do a lot of work and advocacy there, um, but it's not for everyone. I'd say a couple of times when it's not include, you know, if the client really doesn't want to do it, um, especially if they've experienced trauma and they don't want to have to talk about it, um, they're not in a place where they're able to do that. We've certainly had, for example, there's a um, army combat medic um, who deployed in the early uh, days in Iraq, and he had had to testify at a at a different hearing before, and it was. Just pretty devastating for him. He really struggled for the weeks after that, and we didn't want to have to put him through that again. And so um, although we asked for a hearing in his case, we didn't have him testify. He wasn't able to show up. Um, and so there are sometimes ways that you can ask for the hearing. But we, in that case, we had someone else who deployed with him who was willing to testify and at least add some personal element of this is what our deployment like. This is, these are the things that we had to deal with. Um, This is how we were all feeling afterwards. This is how I saw his behavior change. So you can sometimes ask for hearing and not have the person testify. Um, There's also some cases that you'd hope should be pretty, um, some some are, there are easier cases than others. Um, So it might be that strategically you may not want to ask for a hearing, Um, but the big reason is if if it's not in the client's interest. Uh, So I would say, and there are other people who I think maybe aren't on the pro-hearing side in the way that Cindy and I are. And and so I just want to say, like, there is a range of deciding in individual cases um, whether a hearing is worth it or not. Um, Knowing that if you don't ask for hearing at that particular moment, one favorable thing about VA land is that there often is a later moment when you can ask for a hearing. Um, So it's not necessarily a, you give up the opportunity, you never have that chance again, in a way that might be true at the discharge upgrade world. Um, You potentially could try without the hearing and maybe have an opportunity to get a hearing um, if you're denied. Okay, great. And um
0: you mentioned, you know, the the regulatory bars and the statutory bars that i i had on a slide and i flew through for, but they'll be in your materials for everyone. Um can you all talk a little bit about the arguments that you make either if you're doing a brief or you're at the hearing to get over those bars? Um you know, some of the most common bars that you see arise and if if you all have any you know any specific examples that you would like to use? I think that those are always always helpful, um, Matt. Maybe if if we could start with you on on some that you you've seen commonly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, like uh, Dana was saying, you know a lot of a lot of elements of VA adjudication can often be very mechanical. Uh, And these uh, claims adjudicators uh, are not lawyers. Um, You know, we, we got some training on things like statutes and the code of federal regulations, but for the most part, uh, those adjudicators are looking for, like Cindy said, those magic words. Um, And so some of the bars are fairly, fairly straightforward. You know, were you AWOL for a certain number of days? Were you, you know, tried by a court-martial? Those are relatively easy to prove or disprove, but the ones that sort of, uh, two of the ones that I'll highlight that come up a lot that are a little more tricky uh, are the bar for, the regulatory bar for willful and persistent misconduct. uh, And then the regulatory bar for uh, acts of moral turpitude. Um, Those are two of kind of the most challenging. um, And I'll say that as, you know, as a claims adjudicator, when I worked with the VA, they were the hardest for me to apply because at that time I was not a lawyer. You know, I had my couple weeks of training that I came into the job with, um, and then I'm looking at a veteran service record and I'm asked to decide: is their conduct willful and persistent misconduct? Well, what does that mean? Um, and you know, when you're presenting, either uh, you know in written form if you're going to submit a brief or at a hearing. You, know, you really do want to say those magic words that are in not just the statute or the CFR, but that are in their uh, manual, what's called the m 211 Adjudication Procedures Manual. That is the Bible for every VA adjudicator. Uh, and you know they know it like the back of their hand. They look at it for everything. So if you can highlight those magic words that they need to see and hear and show how you know you're demonstrating those with the evidence that really is the key so you know for willful and persistent misconduct you want to highlight that a one-time offense is not necessarily willful and persistent misconduct you know so if it was a one-time incident you know one-time mistake you want to highlight that language Um, even if there was a pattern you know the m21 says multiple instances are not automatically persistent misconduct. So you want to highlight that, Um, you know, and then there's language about, you know, uh, it's not willful and persistent misconduct if their overall service was otherwise honest, faithful, and meritorious. So you want to highlight that language and then show how, how is their overall service aside from maybe this one mistake or a few mistakes that were made, how is their overall service honest, faithful, uh, and meritorious? And you know, these are really difficult um, standards for these non-lawyer adjudicators to apply. Um, and that's why so it is really helpful to get that face-to-face, to get that human connection and sort of uh, walk through these factors. Um, you know, it, it can be tough. A lot of VSRs, myself included when I was one, um, are veterans themselves. Um, and are usually by virtue of being a federal employee are a veteran with an honorable discharge themselves with a excellent service record. Um, And so they can be a little protective. And some of these discharges can be really stigmatizing on paper, uh, especially if they don't have that full context of what happened. Um, So you really want to sort of highlight these standards from the manual uh, and show how they're demonstrated. Um, The other big one that I mentioned is uh, offenses of moral turpitude. Uh, And this one is even harder uh, as a non-lawyer, as a VA adjudicator, um, because, you know, it it can be very tricky to decide what is an act of moral turpitude. You know, what does that mean? And again, that's where you want to go to the manual um, that actually has some really helpful language about how the adjudicators need to apply a liberal standard. They need to take into account things like mental health conditions or other mitigating circumstances. And that's actually the only bar in the whole manual that has that instruction to the VSRs to apply a liberal standard to take into account those other uh, mitigating factors. But moral turpitude, you're probably gonna see that come up most often if there is uh, harm to another person or damage to property. Um, That was the one that we were trained that if you saw any injury to another person, any damage to property, that's the one you can go to, um, because that is written into the standard that that is most commonly what's going to be moral turpitude. So if you see that in the fact pattern in in your in your client's records, you want to address that one head on.
0: That's super helpful. And I'll just I'll, I'll say two things um, one, the M21 that Matt mentioned, I have a link for it in your materials. They do update it periodically. So, you know, I definitely recommend, um, using a link rather than if you download it, just constantly going to, to what you downloaded. Um, and then two, uh, a somewhat shameless plug for discharge upgrades, which is the bulk of what I do and what many of you um, do with us. Uh, When you are thinking about the arguments that that Matt was just talking about um, with the mitigating circumstances for moral turpitude and the overall service was faithful and honest, Willful and persistent, you can really see how uh, these two areas, these two paths for veterans, can kind of dovetail. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit later on. But um, just Matt, when you were talking, it, it I wanted to highlight that because you you really can do both of these processes at the same time. Um, sometimes it's it's not a good idea to do that, but. Um, for various reasons we'll get into. But um, if you are collecting all the evidence and and trying to make arguments for discharge upgrades, many of those those similar arguments could be very helpful in COD world. Um, So Dana, Cindy, I know you guys have done all of these and I'm sure you've faced moral turpitude and willful and persistent. Do you have any examples or other tidbits you wanna share?
2: I'll just share um, quickly a couple case examples on willful and persistent misconduct and moral turpitude. I mean, I have seen um, uh, or some advocates have reported moral turpitude being applied to marijuana use, which seems a little bit out there um, in terms of being a morally turpitudinous offense. But this shows how how vague and broad the language can be for what is considered and how there is some eye of the beholder um, problems with the current regulations. Um, But for the most part, I agree that, and what we know from data is that the willful and persistent misconduct bar is the one that is most often applied and most often used to exclude veterans because it sort of can seem like, well, Willful, did they mean to do it? And persistent, did it happen more than once? um, And be used to quickly sort of say, oh, well, this is excluded under the regulations. Um, But we've been successful advocating for veterans often when there's one-time drug use um, because we can really push on that persistent. It's not persistent because it happened one time or even for veterans who serve for longer periods, if all of their misconduct focused on a specific, you know, a few weeks, a few months after, um, especially after a period of of good service, saying it's not persistent, even though there were multiple instances, because it was a limited period of time. And that's gotten some traction with um, BSRs. Um, we've also tried to talk about will not uh, conduct not being willful, especially when it's you know, self-medicating substance use where there was um, a service-related mental health condition. And so it has to be both willful and persistent. So we try to find those arguments that um, either push on the persistent part or the willful part of it. Okay,
0: thanks so much. Um, And I, speaking of mental health, Um, I also wanted to talk about a specific defense um, that is very unique to COD world. Um, Cindy, could you talk a little bit about the insanity defense? I will pull up a slide. Um,
3: Uh, Before I get into insanity, I just want to touch a little bit on willful and persistent. One um, technique that I've used that's come in real handy. And everybody has a different record. And as Matt had mentioned, a lot of the people making these decisions are also veterans. So finding something that every service member has dealt with, and so that you're connecting to that BSR and they can picture themselves in the same scenario that your veteran was in, is really helpful. And um, there's usually misconduct that's really minor in there associated with somebody's record as well as um, the misconduct that caused the ultimate discharge. So, um, the VA will use like a series of misconducts and say, well, that's persistent, look at them all. And if you separate them and say, well, this was, you know, late for formation, that's minor, big whoop, let's get rid of that one. And then you go to the next one and then, you know, pull that apart and say, anybody could do that. Uh, and then you will maybe just end up with one misconduct and then you can go, well, that's not persistent and and get out of it. So you kind of logic your way through it or that's a great option. And then when all else fails, you have the possibility of insanity. Could you pull up the slide, please, Margaret? I will. It used to be... Uh, I don't know, when I started doing this 10 plus years ago, you could use insanity successfully almost every time. And then at some point, the VA just shut that down. So the definition of insanity, if you are a veteran and you're dealing with the VA, is, again, we're going to just pick up and jump back to the 1960s where they invented the term moral turpitude. And we're gonna throw these words at you: a, uh not mentally defective or constitutionally psychopathic. You know, I, I can't even say them sometimes. This will be updated at some point soon. I'm pretty sure. But for anything that's a bar to benefits, there's this concept of an insanity exception. If you can show that the veteran met this definition of insanity, which is should be a light lift. This is not the criminal definition of insanity. Um, And almost anybody could meet this on a bad day. You should be able to get those behaviors that led to discharge forgiven based on the fact that a veteran was insane at the time. I hate using these words. Um, Comes in really handy for military sexual trauma. If that is part of a person's record and eventually there's a discharge due to misconduct, same for combat PTSD or any PTSD for that matter, um, this is your fallback plan. Right now the VA is, at least the VA's that I've been dealing with, um, hate to use this insanity exception and use it um, sparingly and only if they really have to right now. And they, this. This particular part of the discharge uh, recharacterization process is very opaque. Um, the the person who makes a decision as to whether you're sane or insane under this ridiculous definition, you'll never see that decision. It's not put into VBMS, it's not made record. It's just this like, nope, we decided you were sane. And sometimes they will use words that have nothing to do with this definition. Uh, it was decided that you knew right from wrong at the time that you decided to you know, assault the officer. Um, that's not this definition, but that's what you'll hear sometimes from the VA. So you want to use every other option. You need to give your the BSR who's making the decision every opportunity, to choose something, anything, and then as a last resort, throw insanity in there. But um, we have found that they really like the term mitigating circumstances or extenuating circumstances led to the district, The extenuating circumstances, the person suffered from a military sexual trauma or PTSD, but that you get a, a higher success rate using different terms. Does that help?
0: Yep, that's very, very helpful. Um, yeah, and uh, and I would just add with these cases um, because the language is so stigmatizing, and of itself, um, you know, I you always have to have a a conversation with a veteran when you're making this defense, <laughs> uh, because you know. The, you're not saying that the person is insane but this is very broad definitions um and and yeah something that can be helpful especially as an alternative argument um as you were saying I'll also note that in the materials there is a fairly recent case um that I've provided that um, looks at the insanity exception and, and gives, I don't want to say clarity, but um is helpful with it. Uh and then there's also um a link to a law review article that that also talks about it. Um so resources, it's it it can be helpful um as an alternative argument.
2: Can I um just add a little case Please. example there, which is um we also have presented um insanity-based arguments for a number of our clients uh, in similar circumstances as what Cindy said, if they've experienced any sort of trauma and service that led to a mental health condition. And we particularly push on that. It's the um, subparagraph one that they exhibited a more or less prolonged deviation from their normal method of behavior, because in some ways that's just the definition of a mental health condition, right? you are some way, you have this mental health condition, it changes your behaviors. Like beha- behavioral change is sort of, is what a mental health condition um, is or, or how it's it's categorized and, and named by the psychiatric profession. So um, we, and we've been very successful in actually um, getting someone's, especially if we're getting an independent medical examination from a psychologist, Asking the um, examiner, the psychologist or psychiatrist, did this person have a mental health condition that caused a more or less prolonged deviation from their normal method of behavior? And they can opine about that in the same way that they opine about is there a nexus between their um, mental health condition and the discharge? So if you're already, this is one of those ways that it can really. Married together, well to do both a VA and a DU case at the same time is that if you're already getting a mental health exam, this is just one more question to layer on, and it's often the case that we've that a psychologist will say yes, there was a mental health. If there's a mental health condition, it caused some behavioral change over this period of time, and as Matt said earlier, VA really loves to have its magic words, and so if you can use the magic words not of insanity but of this is what the regulation says. You then have some pretty strong evidence that the insanity ex- um, exception should apply, um, and uh, I will say, and and VA hasn't always loved that evidence. It's, as Cindy said, like sometimes they'll push back on it, or they won't pay attention to it and say, "This isn't this is an administrative decision. It's not a medical decision." But it's clearly, if it's a question of mental health. There's a medical aspect to it, and if you provide present um, strong evidence, we've been successful, especially in a hearing, sort of just walking, um, or or in a in a letter brief to VA saying like this is what the statute says, this is what the regulation says, we have a medical um, report that says these words, thus we've met the bar, um, and that's helped in a lot of different cases. Um, and just to your point about will this language change eventually? Um, we have heard from people who are familiar with the workings inside VA that changing this definition has sort of been in the works for a long time. It's sort of been on the list of things VA is looking to change. I think it's an open question whether that's a good thing or not, because the definition is so strange and archaic um, that it's better than having a definition of insanity that really accords with what we're familiar from the criminal law context, that's a much higher standard than what we have in VA. Um, And it's a word that actually exists in the statute. So you have to have some sort of insanity standard here. Um, And I'm, you know, question whether the definition they would come up with now, even if more clear would actually be better in terms of granting access, Um, especially because it's really the only place that expressly allows consideration of mental health conditions um, under the current regulations. And that's one of the reasons why um, NVLSP and Swords to Plowshares um, have been working for a long time to change the the regulations so that there is more explicit consideration of mitigating circumstances Um, that's, that's just not there now in the actual words of the regulations in the statute.
0: I'm really glad you you mentioned all of that, and especially the connection between getting potentially getting a evaluation um, that can be helpful for a discharge upgrade and for the COD process. Um, just kind of jumping off of that a little bit, Cindy or or Matt um Matt, when you've seen these, these types of arguments um, you know from the inside or, Cindy, when you've argued them, do you find that you have to have uh, a medical eval to make this type of argument or how have you handled that? Or Matt, what was persuasive?
1: Yeah, so I will say um, it's definitely helpful um, as far as I can't give too much insight personally on uh, adjudicating the insanity. The insanity exception, because once you raise insanity, uh, the claim has to go over to the rating activity, which is sort of a separate activity. Um, it's it's staffed with what are called rating VSRs who are trained on the medical sort of side of rating and adjudicating claims. So I don't have any inside insight on sort of what helps them, Um find in your favor on insanity but absolutely raising that explicit language that they're going to recognize is uh, super helpful and a medical opinion definitely helps because if you don't submit medical opinion or medical evidence they can request medical exams but generally they're going to go ahead and adjudicate it on the record uh, without any additional medical exams and um
3: Quite often when you're using this exception, there's a PTSD service connection uh, that goes along with it or schizophrenia, bipolar, take your pick. And if the exam is already done for that from the VA, that exam can be really helpful evidence to make an insanity argument, Uh, it depends on the timing. you don't always have access to get an outside medical opinion. Um, and the VA sometimes, you know, you can get a VA mental health clinician who will do it for you and write it up nicely because they understand this scenario and the situation, but sometimes they're precluded from doing that. So it depends. Mm -hmm. If you get an exam that helps, um, Yeah, I'm still not happy with the whole opaqueness of this other person who's making a decision and they don't tell you their reasoning. And so I prefer to go a different angle where I can. If I can get a yes, just getting to yes is what I need to do. And I don't really care how I get there. Mm -hmm. Great.
0: Thank you. Um... And speaking of getting to yes, there is another, not really exception, but another way that you can get to yes, at least for some access, and that's if a veteran has multiple terms. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, Cindy?
3: Yeah, love the multiple terms. Um, It's a great way to get to a fast yes. Typically, we're dealing with veterans who need access to health care, need access to income from a service-connected disability um, in order to just get by while you wait for a long process, maybe a long appeal, a long discharge upgrade. So getting to any access is better than no access And multiple terms is a great way to do that. The VA knows about them. It's, um, I'm sure, written up in DM the DM-21, although I haven't looked, but there's a Regulation 38 CFR 3.13 that goes through the concept of conditional discharges. And if you see a veteran with a DD-214, the DOD looks at it as it's one service. No matter how many years, it's one service, one DD-214, and the VA will quite nicely chunk it up into multiple terms even when there's only one DD-214 and they'll do it based on your contract. So when you enlist and you've signed a contract and that says, I'm gonna serve for four years, but probably at three, three and a half, you've re-upped. So now you've started a whole new contract uh, three and a half years in, and another three and a half years, you maybe have a whole new contract after that. Um, If they've, Resigned you the the military service, the army, the navy, is saying, we think you're good enough to sign back up. So that's kind of that's a great sign of honest, faithful, meritorious service. And you can use the re-up, but they re-up to three and a half years and the contract was for four. So now you need to, you have to look through the whole four-year period, the whole contract period, it might be four, sometimes they're six or three and show that there was no misconduct during that period. And you can do that by looking at proficiency exams, good conduct medals, certificates. Sometimes honorable discharge certificates are issued even though there's not a DD-214. So you're to look through the entire military personnel file and if you can find them, and present them to the VA. If nothing else, you'll get from this date to this date, that's honorable for VA purposes. And the end of it is not. And you can fight that fight later, but in the meantime, they have access to healthcare, Any service-connected disability that's connected to that honorable period of service, which is sometimes problematic, um, but you can pull stuff back into that, is also available for service connection, for compensation, for medical care. So you can get a whole lot with just an honorable term of service, even if there's dishonorable behind it. And there is a question in the Q&A regarding um how to reopen a COD which um you trigger it just with uh, an appeal and instead of putting um, I'm trying to reopen PTSD like you can file an 0995 form just an appeal form and say recharacterization of discharge will reopen it with hopefully new and material evidence or um, any standard appeal that any way you would appeal a disability, you can appeal a COD.
0: Great, thank you so much, um, and and thank you for for monitoring the questions too. I'm I'm not as good at that. <laughs> um, so to to get to one more specific argument type. Um, Dana, I wanted to turn to you on some special case, case type considerations, um, and and maybe if that leads you into talking a little bit about the petition for rulemaking, um, I, I think everybody would love to hear about that.
2: Sure. Um, before entering that, I would also say... Um, Cindy's point about back to back discharges, the veterans benefits manual section on back to back and conditional discharges is excellent and super helpful for doing that calculation that Cindy was saying of like, how long was their contract and how do we put one after the other and what are the different ways? and going through the scenarios, super helpful. So if that's a situation for um, the veteran you're working with, I would highly recommend the veterans benefits manual section on that. Um, uh, In terms of a couple special case types, we've talked a lot about veterans who are experiencing trauma or mental health issues, um, where it's really important to look at, might the insanity exception apply? Are there ways to push on the willfulness aspect of willful and persistent misconduct? Um, But another, um, and and similarly, um, veterans who are experiencing intimate partner violence might fall into a similar category where you can make those similar arguments. Another big category of veterans um, who we often refer cases to, uh, these pro bono panel members, uh, all of you on the call, uh, relate to discrimination, whether that's based on LGBTQ status um, or, or racial discrimination. And I would say this is one of the areas where it really becomes quite obvious, the failings of the current regulations, because they really focus on the misconduct um the all the bars really look at what did you do wrong and with very limited exceptions do they allow um, expressly allow veterans to say but here's what happened here's the context in which this misconduct this alleged misconduct um happened um so you know there are a couple places for mitigating circumstances for example in the statutory bar for Um, that says you cannot get benefits if you are absent without leave for more than 180 days, there is a consideration for compelling circumstances. And so sometimes you can present information about compelling circumstances, Um, but that's otherwise, um, you can talk about honest, faithful and meritorious service if there's a willful and persistent misconduct question. Um, And as Matt flagged earlier, there has been some language added to the moral turpitude bar only in subregulatory guidance, the M twenty one about mitigating circumstances, even if that mitigating extenuating circumstances is not expressly allowed, I'd argue it anyway. Um, we sort of always include in our in our um, in our letter briefs, or if we're going to a hearing, a sort of final argument that's like, look. The statute really talks about, is this person's service dishonorable or other than dishonorable? And yes, maybe they did do this wrong thing, but let's make the whole argument about context. Let's talk about mitigating circumstances and discrimination, whatever it is that actually happened to them, um, and say, you know, weighing in the balance, this isn't, you can't consider this dishonorable. And let's go back to the statute. Um, And I think that... you know, I can't say exactly, but I think it gets some traction for really just painting the whole picture of this person. Um, They're not just a single page DD214 that says other than honorable on the bottom. They're a person who had a lived experience and this is what happened. Um, And there has been specifically in the M21, there was some um, language added about maybe a year and a half ago regarding LGBTQ service members in particular, who might've been discharged under don't act, don't tell or prior policies, where it says if that's the basis and they have a potentially disqualifying discharge, that generally shouldn't be a barrier. I would say the language is not very helpful or clear, not as much as you think it would be for um, what uh, that veteran's population experienced. But still, I, um, again, I would generally just say, explain what happened, advocate, um, uh, especially if um, someone was kicked out other than honorably the sort of pretextual misconduct where they were really targeted and kicked out for something that um, just because they were being discriminated against, um, Explaining the context of what happened is the best chance you have, even if it's not expressly allowed in the regulations. Um, and Margaret, since you, since you invited me, I'll just say, we have been for seven years now uh, trying to get VA to change its regulations. Um, it's, as you can tell from that peer number, uh, been a long uh, process. Um, we'll be sure to update everyone on the panel uh, once uh, we hear something from them. Um, I think we've seen a lot of movement over this period of time with VA understanding the um, many factors that can lead veterans to be kicked out with a less than honorable discharge, but it's really, really important to change the regulations um, and to to allow greater access. So that's something we've been working on.
0: Yes, and and definitely we will let everybody know. It will be hopefully a very exciting day. (laughs) TBD, we'll see. so I, I know we talked a little bit about it already, um, but I also wanted to talk in um, a bit more detail about the appeal lanes if a, a veteran doesn't prevail. Um, Matt, can I ask you to talk a little bit about the options?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when the, the VA makes a COD determination, That is a a VA decision that is subject to appeal uh, like any other benefits decision. Um, So, a few years ago, the VA uh, modernized their appeals uh, system, and there's now what's called three lanes uh, of appeal that you can choose. Um, So, the first one is called a higher level review or HLR. Um, Under an HLR, you're basically asking for the decision that was just made to be quickly reviewed by someone higher up uh, in the VA. Uh, So you request a higher level review, it goes back to a more senior uh, BSR, a more senior adjudicator. You don't get to submit any new evidence, you don't get to have a hearing or make any arguments to them. They just sort of re-look at the case uh, and make a decision and sort of screen it for any mistakes that that more junior adjudicator might've made. Um, I think the VA, they update their numbers from time to time. I think they quote around three to four months is what they aim for uh, to adjudicate those appeals. Um, The second option is what's called a supplemental claim. Um, And you can actually make a supplemental claim at any time. So that is, if there was a COD determination in the past, you can submit a supplemental claim. Uh, You have to submit new and relevant evidence uh, in order to submit a supplemental claim. Uh, But that's processed just like a regular claim. Uh, So it goes into the system. It's adjudicated by a um, VSR and is sort of subject to the same timelines uh, as a usual VA claim, which I think right now they're claiming around 120, 130 days as their average uh, processing time. Um, So not too bad. Uh, And then the third uh, lane is an actual appeal to the Board of Veterans Appeals. And within that lane, there are sort of three sub lanes that you can choose at the Board of Veterans Appeals. Uh, You can ask for a direct review, uh, which means you don't get to submit any evidence uh, and you don't get a hearing. Uh, They just, the board reviews it immediately on the record. Uh, You can ask for evidence submission, which is where you don't get a hearing, but you can submit additional evidence to the board. And then finally, you can ask for a hearing. Uh, And then in that case, you can submit new evidence and Uh, you receive a hearing before the BVA. Uh, I think uh, from some of their most recent uh, numbers they've put up, an appeal to the BVA takes anywhere from around a year to sometimes several years. Uh, The longest is the hearing lane that can take, uh, they're averaging, I think, you know, two to three years uh, right now on uh, hearing lane uh, down to maybe around a year for direct review.
0: I think uh discharge upgrade world is one of the few areas that makes the VA look fast <laughs> <laughs> or look somewhat speedy for some of those lanes. Um are there and I'll open this up to anyone. Are there specific errors that you you frequently see um that you know might might make you want to, you know, do an HLR or Um, Something that, you know, if somebody sees a negative COD, they should look for that we haven't touched on.
1: Um, So I know I I can say I have done a CLR uh, when I did CODs with legal aid. Um, I did an HLR um, for uh, a COD that came back and the the decision letter just simply did not include uh, whether insanity was or wasn't at issue. Um, which is just a facial sort of legal deficiency. They're required by the M21, by the regulations to include at least a statement of whether insanity is or isn't at issue. And we had actually explicitly raised it uh, in the letter brief, and they just didn't address it and didn't even include the statement as to whether it was at an issue. So that's where I did request an HLR because it was just kind of an on the, on the face of the decision error. Uh, and they did correct it and found uh, insanity. So we were able to get a pretty quick uh, positive decision.
2: I'll just add another um, common error is mixing up a special versus a general court-martial. The um, statute and regulations specifically refer to a general court-martial, which is the highest level sort of felony court in the military justice system, is excluding Special court martial is not, Um, uh, you know, the underlying offense could potentially be considered part of willful and persistent misconduct. But they're not allowed to say just because you have a special court martial, you're excluded. Um, So that's been an area where, if you see that, definitely, if there's any sort of suggestion that court martial is the basis for discharge, making sure to go in someone's military personnel file, check out what type of court martial it was, and make sure they didn't misclassify
3: it. The error i see most often and it is tough competition but is where somebody's applied for there's a cod already on record and rather than re-adjudicating that or reopening that the va will just deny and go oh no we say you're dishonorable so we're not even going to look at your service connected claims and if it's a regulatory bar they should still be able to be service connected for these disabilities. And so the service connection needs to happen and medical care would be given even if there's a regulatory bar. And we see that mistake a lot where the VA just says, nope, but the answer should not be no. It should be, let's look at this again. And if I'm applying for PTSD, it really should reopen a COD. So you wanna be explicit. If you know there's a bad COD on record, you wanna reopen that along with whatever else you're applying for to make sure that it gets looked at again and veteran status is re-adjudicated. Yeah,
2: I'll um, just echo what Cindy's saying, which is that uh, there seem to be a lot of, not just substantive, but procedural errors with character of discharge determinations. And that's bad, I mean, right, We, we want to be adjudicating correctly, according to the law and making a determination that's hopefully favorable. Um, but if we've had a number of clients also where because we've been able to point to procedural errors that were, that happened years ago, um, ultimately win the COD, but because there were issues before make arguments where ultimately when we get the veteran service connected, they end up getting benefits going back for a couple of decades and they receive these huge retroactive awards. And it's a really, um, I mean, in any favorable COD that grants access to benefits, supportive services, and really just the recognition of the federal government saying, yes, we think you are a veteran, because that's really the question here. Do you count as a veteran in the eyes of the federal government? Um, it's a life-changing uh, event to be part of with a veteran. Um, it can it can really be, be life-changing for them to have these supportive services. But if that also comes with Back benefits for the amount of time that they have been excluded from VA. Um, you know, it can be for people who otherwise may have faced a lot of challenges post service, be really, um, really life changing for them and for their families. Um, and so that's why this work is really can be so meaningful.
0: Thank you all. Um, that was really helpful. Um, so I, I want to leave a little bit of time if possible for, for additional questions, um, but I also wanted to see if there are best best practices or, you know, any other tidbits of insight that I haven't asked you about that, that you all want to share. Um, Matt, can, can we start start with you from your insider-outsider experience if there are, are tips that, that you would give people?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I will say um, definitely touching back to the want to um, knowing whether a COD has already been done in the past is really important and making sure that if that veteran had a COD that was done somewhere in the past, I mean, sometimes it can be decades prior uh, to when you're working with them, that you know that, that you're aware of that, and that you're submitting that supplemental claim to try to reopen that alongside whatever else Uh, you are submitting, don't assume that that VSR will know that they need to continue the claim uh, and look for those service-connected conditions. Uh, They will very, very likely, if they see that DVA, that dishonorable for VA purposes, they're just going to close the claim, uh, claim their point for having finished that claim for the day, uh, and they're going to move on, uh, and they're not going to re-adjudicate it unless you explicitly raise it. Um, one sort of insider tip that I'll give is whenever you can use one of the VA's forms, for example, that 200995 supplemental claim form, do so, even if it doesn't precisely fit. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen an attorney's letter brief dumped into the C file as just correspondence, and it doesn't generate a work task. It doesn't generate what we call EPs or end product tasks, it doesn't come up out of the cloud for a VSR to work on it. Um, And then down the line, that attorney's calling sometime later, like, did you get my brief that I submitted asking you to reopen the COD? And no, they didn't. Uh, And so it's just been sitting there. Um, So but the VA's forms generate those automatic uh, claim uh, tasks. So even if a form doesn't quite fit, you can sort of jam a square peg in a round hole and uh, make the claim come up in their system uh, and have them actually do something with it.
0: It's fascinating. Thank you. Um, that was really good to know. Uh, Cindy, do you have
3: best practices? Uh, major co-sign on everything Matt just said. <laughs> We, uh, we learned that kind of the hard way by going, I'm a lawyer, I wrote a letter, you should be paying attention to me. No, throw it on a form. We've even used a form to just say, seriously, continue the claim. Like It's been sitting there for a year, and we'll just, to get somebody's attention, file another form, and then argue about the effective date later. Uh, VBMS and access to the online system has been life-saving as a veteran advocate. Seeing what's going on in the back end, getting a sense of how the VA thinks and how they process claims really helps be a better adjudicator. And uh the process to become eligible to you know have online access at the VA is probably the most nightmarish process you'll go through, totally worth it. It's, you, you will look back and be happy you did it. So I recommend get accredited if you're not already or partner up with somebody who is so you can have this access to the online file and um, and really dynamically see what's going on with the case and be able to react appropriately in file forms because that really does get their attention.
2: Yeah, And BA has made some progress in terms of also recognizing that there are law firms out there that lawyers don't just work as one offs. And so we've actually um, it may be that only one person in a firm needs to have this VBMS access if they can be appointed and work with others. So it doesn't have to be that everyone has to go through the rigmarole of you have to become accredited, but getting this extra uh, computer access. If one person has it, it, it can be helpful if they're part of the same firm.
0: Yeah, and I'll just mention to get accredited. So unlike with discharge upgrades where you don't, there's no accreditation requirement, there is for the VA. <coughs> sorry about my voice. Um, it's it's quite easy. It is just a form that you fill out. Uh, you can mail fax, e- I would suggest email it in. And um it takes them usually a couple months to process it. And then you need to get three hours of training in. After you, after they have processed the form, you need to get three hours of training in in a year. Um, and in your materials, I provided a you know um, frequently asked questions from the VA website about how to get accredited. It has links to the forms. Um, there's also a link to a training that's put on through the Practicing Law Institute that is a six hour training. You don't have to watch all six hours, um, but if you watch three hours after the accreditation form has been processed, then that can that can satisfy it. But there's lots of other um, trainings, and if if you're interested in in finding a training, please reach out to me. There also is an exception for uh, people who are taking a case pro bono; they can take one case um, without being accredited. So. Um, There's also that option. But if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. And yes, the VBMS um, access, which I'm actually not quite sure what VBMS stands for. Um, I could guess, but I'm not going to. Veterans Benefits Management System. Okay. There you go. Um, it's fantastic. Cause you can actually see, you know, everything you filed, you can file it that way. Um, it's, uh, you can see if they've made a decision because, um, sometimes they don't send it promptly. Um, so it, it is, it is quite helpful. Um, Dana, uh, last, um, words of wisdom that you have. Sure. Um, well to, to bring it first, per- Circle and
2: um, tie it into the the discharge upgrade work that um, brought so many of you to joining this pro bono panel and being part of the program today. I just thought it'd be helpful to say a little bit about how do you think about having one um, veteran client who you're working with and thinking about doing both a VACOD and a discharge upgrade at the same time. Um, there are a lot of sort of efficiencies of scale of doing both of them because there's a lot of overlap in Relevant facts in the evidence that you would develop. Um, I talked about mental health examinations before, but also sort of the letters of support that you might get, um, looking through someone's military records. All of that work can matter as much for a discharge upgrade as for a character of discharge determination. Um, It also can be really great um, for clients um, where you kind of, you know, they may really be facing a lot of. Challenges. that's not true for every veteran client, but it's true for many of them. And you kind of want to be pushing on every door and seeing which one opens fastest. And we've had veterans with very similar circumstances. I can think of two Vietnam veterans who both combat engineers deployed to Vietnam. For both of them, we decided like we'll do the COD and the discharge upgrade at the same time. And for each of them, like one, the COD came in faster. The other, the discharge upgrade came in faster. And then they ultimately ended up winning each, both of their cases, but um, you sort of can't know which one will be faster. You may end up having to appeal, go to hearings, Um, but we ultimately got them where they wanted to go and faster for trying, just kind of trying everything. Um, Sometimes though, there are certain cases where the law on one side is better than the other, or it's really helpful to for example, go through the VA COD process because VA may develop some evidence, um, especially around mental health and getting someone access to mental health care at VA could then provide them a level of stability, have a supporting psychologist who might write write some sort of letter or at least have some note in the file that can make the diagnosis that then you can go over to the discharge upgrade uh, boards and say, aha, look, they do have this trauma-related mental health condition from service, that should entitle them to liberal consideration and they should get an upgrade based on CURTA. So there's a way that sometimes, you know, if you go to DOD, they can change the character service, take that to VA, VA has to recognize it. If you go to VA first, they might help develop evidence or provide supportive services that then are good evidence to say, actually we should get an upgrade based on the evidence that comes from the VA side of things. so you do really have to um, and really, of course, always paramount are what are your clients' goals? There are some clients who they may not care what it actually says on their DD214, but they really could use access to healthcare from VA. And so it makes sense to go through the VA COD process because that's the thing they care about. It may be that they really want to get GI Bill benefits, and um, you know, when they have a general discharge um or or not and they can't, the COD process isn't going to help them. You have to get a discharge upgrade and go to to the get the honorable discharge from a DOD board. Um, So it comes down to the specific circumstances. And of course, um, for all of you who are volunteering pro bono, um, Margaret is always a great resource to talk about how how it might fit in your individual case. But I would say um, these are two practice areas that go really hand in hand. It's great to have both in your toolbox and think about for each individual client, which one fits best for them.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and I would say even if, um, you know, this isn't an area that you want to go into, you want to just stick with the, the discharge upgrade lane, um, letting veterans know that this is an option is really important because if if they've been turned away in the past, they may just think that, that they categorically cannot access the VA or they may have been told that and they've never tried. Um so it's it's a really helpful thing. Um, I also noticed that there is a question on time limit to upgrade a discharge. Um, so with with the VA, you can always ask for, you know, a a veteran can always go and apply for for benefits, can always ask for a COD. Um, we talked about how you can you can appeal that as well if there's already been a negative COD uh, for a discharge upgrade. Um, there are time limits kind of, um, there is a very strict 15 year statute of limitations at the discharge review boards, and that's 15 years from the date of discharge, um, If a veteran, let's say it's a Vietnam era veteran, obviously way outside the 15 years from the date of discharge, they can still go to the board for correction of military records. um, And every branch has one of those as well. That has a three year statute of limitations from the discovery of the error or injustice um, that led to the discharge um, that, that you're trying to get upgraded. Uh, but that is a very flexible standard, and usually the boards will waive it. And in some cases, um, especially with mental health, they actually have to waive it. And it can also be three years from a you know negative DRB discharge review board decision. So um, technically, yes, there are time limits in the DU world. There definitely are time limits on the DRBs, but we can almost always bring a case. Uh, if, if a veteran is outside that 15 years. Okay, well, that is the only question I see, but if questions come up later, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, anything at all, discharge upgrade related or COD related or anything else, I'll, I'll try to help. Um, feel free to contact me. Thank you all so much. Thank you to our panelists and again to Noah and the Boston Bar Association for hosting. Um, we will see you all next year at the annual training. Thank you so much.